We'd like to mention something before we get into our lesson. Some of you missed something, but we don't want to leave you out. In our Bible class this morning, we had a Bible quiz over both the Old Testament and the New Testament. Some people seem to think it was hard. I didn't think it was hard. Of course, I had the Bible to make up the questions. and didn't have to take it. But there are a hundred points to the, quest, to, the, to the test. We didn't put any names. We don't want any names on them. Nobody will know what your grade is unless you want to tell them. You and God are the only ones who shall know. But what we've done is to just number all the tests. And so all you have to do is remember your number. Unless you want to tell somebody else to help you remember it or write it down, because nobody else will, will know. After we've graded all the papers, we'll put them back out on the table, and uh, you just have to look through there with your number and find it and take it home. We'll probably want to average up all the, uh, the grades and just see how we're doing as a congregation. I think it's a, it's a good challenge. It's really for your good because it will help us to understand uh, whether we need to study a little bit more. Uh, we don't want to become complacent with the Bible knowledge that we have. God wants us to keep studying, and, and if you're like me, I have to keep studying because things, you know, can get away from you. So that's the purpose. Now, those who didn't have the opportunity this morning, we're going to give you a test. Uh, you're on your own honor. It's an honor system type quiz. Take it home. We used about, what, 40 minutes this morning, uh, but finish it if it takes you 45, 50, whatever. And then bring it back, and you can put it on my desk, or you can put it out there. You don't have to turn it into me. And I can see, oh, you're number 10. I'll remember that. And uh, No, just, just turn it in somewhere so it won't get lost, and we will uh, see that's graded. We'll probably have the papers graded by Wednesday night, certainly by next Sunday. If you have any question about that quiz, I, I can't think of what else to tell you. Laverne's got some extra sheets. What? Lisa has the, the test, so um, you want to see Lisa to get one. If, if not, uh, we'll, we'll find you. <laughs> no. <clears throat> we have a good attendance this morning. It's good to see everybody with us. When we turn to 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 15, the King James reads, Study to show thyself approved unto God. Other versions say, Give diligence to present thyself unto God. A workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing or rightly handling the word of truth. So he's not really just saying there, study the Bible. That's involved. That's not the primary point. The use of the word study. The idea is... It's a diligent project. And we're to give diligence. We're to be serious about living such a way that we can be presented unto God acceptably to Him. Give diligence to present thyself unto God. Approved of God. And then when he mentions a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing or rightly handling the word of truth. And we have both... Uh, Evidently, that can be rendered either way. I've got it both in my text and my footnote. And the idea is that the word of God, the word of truth, can be wrongly divided. It can be wrongly handled. And so Paul is t uh, writing to Timothy and to you and me and everybody else that will read these scriptures. 
that we are to rightly handle, rightly divide the word of truth. There are ways, and Paul refers to some who would handle it, the word of truth, wrongly, by being deceitful, by trying to to gain something over someone else. But that's not the proper use of the word. I like the idea of rightly dividing, that we cannot properly understand God's will for us today if we don't understand the promises that he made, the commands that were given, and to whom they were made and given. We have 66 books in the Bible. They're divided up into two major sections. Generally, we say the Old Testament and the New Testament. And I I suppose we understand by that the 39 books of the Old Testament, the 27 books of the New Testament. But we're talking about an Old Testament, an Old Covenant, as Hebrews 8 and 13 uses those expressions. It's talking about the Mosaical Law Covenant that God gave to his people. Because there are different covenants and there are different testaments that we read about in the Old Testament 39 books. God had a covenant with Adam. And that covenant was extended to all Gentiles until he made a special covenant with Abraham's descendants and that was a wall of partition that separated Adam's, uh, excuse me, uh, Abraham's descendants from, certain descendants, from the rest of all the people. So there were different covenants. God made a covenant with Noah when he came off of the ark after the flood was over. I'll not destroy the land again by a flood. And that was for Noah as well as who, those who would follow. He made a covenant with David and just with David that one of his descendants would sit upon his throne. Of course, that's Christ. He made a covenant with the, the Levites or with, with the priest, the priesthood, the Aaronic priesthood. And so there are different covenants or testaments, and we use those words interchangeably generally, in the Old Testament books or the 39 books. But generally, we're thinking about that primary main covenant that God made with Abraham and his descendants. And we'll talk a little bit more about that later. In the New Testament, or New Covenant, we have 27 books. And there we have one covenant. Not with just one nation, but with everybody. Everybody is amenable to God and to the law of that covenant. And subject to receive all the promises of God in that New Covenant. And so when we divide rightly handling these words, we need to recognize, well now in the Old Testament, we have five books. It's called the law. Genesis, Exodus, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. There's a lot of history there. But these five books are referred to as the law because the cardinal point of these five books is the law that God gave through Moses to his people. So those five books are called the law generally. Then we have 12 books of history. And they go in chronological order. That's one of the reasons why these books are grouped as they're grouped. They are not just haphazardly there, Joshua, Judges, and Ruth. Joshua followed Moses. Judges followed the death of Joshua. Ruth was a part of the time of the Judges, so there's a proper order. First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles, Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther. The last three have reference to the time, historical time, after the Babylonian captivity, the post-exilic uh, period of Bible history. 
And then we have five books of poetry or five books of wisdom, Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Song of Solomon. And you can see why they're referred to as books of poetry, the way they're written. Books of wisdom because of the Proverbs and other things. The books of Psalms have many prophecies in them, and yet uh, it's in that listing or that grouping. Then we have 17 books of prophecy, five major, 12 minor. And the distinction is made because in the major prophets and their books, they're bigger books. Much more is written, many more words. It doesn't mean that the minor prophets were of less importance than Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, and Daniel. But they're just more, they're shorter. Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi. They're in order for our study. The New Testament books, we have four that we refer to as the gospel. The gospel accounts, according to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, telling us about the life of Christ. We want to learn something about Jesus, where do you look? Well, we don't want to look in Psalms, though it'd be all right, because there are many prophecies in Psalms about Christ. But if we're looking at the recording about his life here upon the earth, the fulfillment of many of those prophecies, we'll look in Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. One book referred to as the book of history. Now, there's history recorded in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, but the book of Acts is a book of history. It gives us a history of the establishment of the church, and that's the centerpiece of the, for the history and how it grew and how it spread and what it encountered. And then we have 21 books of, uh, or well, we call them books, we call them epistles or letters. And there we can find also about the different problems the church had. And these are important, and I'll tell you this reason. There are those who think that, no, there's no pattern in the New Testament for the church today. And their argument is silly. And what they'll say is, now, which of these New Testament churches is going to be our pattern? Is it going to be Corinth with all of their problems? Is it going to be the church in Thessalonica? They had problems we've been studying about on Wednesday night. No, that's not the point. All of them together present a pattern for the church from that day until the end of time. Whenever they had a problem, that problem was addressed. When they had division... Paul said it's a sin to be divided. So we're looking to the, the church of Corinth as an example. We're going to be divided like they are? No. We're going to do what they should have been doing. And uh, reading these epistles or letters will help us understand what that strict pattern from God is. The last book, book of Revelation, is generally called the book of prophecy. Because it does deal with prophecy, does it not? Different ideas about it. I'll tell you the right one. <laughs> no, I won't say it that way. Uh, it is talking about those things that were shortly to come to pass, both at the beginning of the book and at the end of the book. But it's a prophecy about the victory of the Lord's church and the Lord himself as the Lord of Lords and King of Kings over all of their enemies. Now, that's the bottom line. Well, we've said something about these books, rightly handling them. That's the, the main idea this morning. I'll not take the time to give some reasons why, maybe I better, why we ought to study all of the Bible, especially the Old Testament. One reason is so we can understand the New Testament. Can you read through the book of Hebrews being totally ignorant of the Old Testament and understand the book of Hebrews? Because there are so many comparisons or 
properly contrast that are made between Christ and the various things in the Old Testament, such as the angels and Moses, uh, the priesthood, the Old Covenant, and, and on and on. But if we don't understand those things, we won't understand what the writer is telling us in the New Testament. So we need to study it. It gives us an overall abiding presence of God. It gives us examples of what we should avoid and what we should imitate. Examples of God blessed those who were obedient and the consequences of those who were disobedient and his punishment or curse upon them. Hebrews 15 and 4 says that whatsoever things were written aforetime were written for our learning. Upon whom the ends of the... Nope, that's no. Uh, were written for our learning that through patience and comfort of the scriptures we might have hope. So what did the Old Testament, that's the things written aforetime, do? They instruct us. They teach us. We learn from them. They provide comfort. And that leads to hope. And that comes from the Old Testament. 1 Corinthians 10 and 11, these things, and he just referred to five incidents from the Old Testament scriptures. These things happen unto them, those Old Testament people, by way of example. They're our examples. And they were written for our admonition upon whom the ends of the ages are come. 1 Corinthians 10 and 11. So there is much value in studying the Old Testament scriptures. Uh, there are other reasons, but uh, those will help us. Well, let's look at the three dispensations or ages that the Bible reveals. God has dealt with his people or with his creation in three different ages. The first one's the patriarchal, the second we'll call the mosaical, and the third we'll call the Christian age. The patriarchal, patri refers to father, archal means rule. So he's talking about the father rule age. No written revelation at that time. God spoke to, for example, Adam was the first patriarch. Another major patriarch was Noah. Another was Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, down to the time of Moses. And so we read about the patriarchal age, the father rule age, when God spoke directly to the fathers who acted as priests. I don't know if we'd call them kings, but they were the, uh, the rulers over their families. Down to the time of Moses. In the first 50 chapters of Genesis, the next 19 chapters of Exodus, which is about half, Exodus has 40 chapters. So the patriarchal age tells us in one and a half books of the Bible. Then the rest of the Old Testament from Exodus 20 down to Malachi and Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John tells us about things that happened under the Mosaical age. Even though these four books are found in the New Testament, they're describing the time of the Mosaical period. Jesus was born under the law, Galatians 4 and 4. In the fullness of time, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. He was born under the Mosaical law, kept it perfectly, and fulfilled it, took it out of the way, and so forth. And so we have the Mosaical age being referred to from Exodus 20 all the way down through Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. So the book of Acts at chapter 2, the day of Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit was sent by the Lord down upon the apostles only, the church was established, and we read about the gospel being preached in its fullness by Peter upon that day, 
The 3,000 souls that responded were added to the church and the rest of the New Testament. The Christian age. And that's where we look. Now, we also look in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John because of this. Jesus is teaching. He had a will. A covenant or a testament, if you wish, from Hebrews 9. That didn't take effect until he died. You have a will, you can change it, can you not, until you die. You won't change it after you die. Somebody can't change it. Nobody can change it then, can they? The will is effective until the death of the testator. Jesus was presenting some of his will. Now, not all of it. Because he promised to send the Holy Spirit upon the apostles to guide them into all the truth. They hadn't received all the truth yet. But they'd received some of it. So some of the things that Jesus taught in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John were part of the Christian age. And so we study those to find out what the Lord wants us to do. But we have to be careful. We have to be able to distinguish between that which was being observed and being practiced as a part of the Old Covenant. Because Jesus kept that. He went into the Sabbath, or into the synagogue upon the Sabbath. Why? Because that was the day under the old covenant that they had observed as a day of worship and so forth. But that's not our example there. Because the Lord giving us his full will, his full testament or covenant, has changed that part. And we'll notice that a little bit later on. So, we've got the patriarchal dispensation. We have the mosaical dispensation and the Christian age. Now, the Mosaical Age and the law that was given for the people under that age was only meant to be temporary. It wasn't meant to be permanent. In fact, Hebrews 8 and 7 says that if that first covenant had been faultless, then would no place have been sought for the second. That is, the second covenant. It doesn't mean that God made a mistake, but it talks about the flesh. It's in Romans 8 and 3. Because of the weakness of man's flesh... He could not keep that law. And so what did the Lord do? He had a temporary covenant with only his people that was to last until the seed should come to whom the promise was made. Let me give you a few scriptures. There are so many scriptures that show the temporary nature of that old mosaical Ten Commandment law covenant that I'm astounded when I find people saying, well, we've got to go back here, or here's where I find authority back in the Old Covenant. But if we just look at a few of the scriptures, it'll show that we're not under that Old Covenant. There's no authority under that Old Covenant for what God wants done today. No authority. We study it, but we're not looking for what God has authorized today in that Old Covenant. Let me read from Galatians 3. Chapter 3 is a good, good chapter for this. First, I'll look at uh, verse uh, 19. What then is the law? That's what we're talking about, isn't it? It was added because of transgressions till the seed should come to whom the promise hath been made. And it was ordained to angels by the hand of a mediator. And Moses being the mediator. All right, this law was added till... There's a termination. What is the till pointing to? Till the seed should come to whom the promise hath been made. Now remember that. The seed to whom the promise hath been made. It's only until then. Look at verse 16. If I can find 16. All right. Now to Abraham 
were the promises spoken and to his seed. He saith not, and to seeds as of many, but as of one, and to thy seed, which is Christ. So verse 19 says that the law was added till the seed should come, to whom the promise hath been made is referring to Christ. Galatians 3, 24 and 25 bears us out again. So that the law is become our schoolmaster or our tutor to bring us unto Christ that we might be justified by faith. Now notice 25. But now that faith has come, we're no longer under tutor. We're no longer under schoolmaster. But the law provided or at least served to that capacity. It was our, our teacher, the one who brought us to Christ. But now that Christ has come, that's the seed. No longer under it. Hebrews, Hebrews uh, 10 and 9. He taketh away the first that he may establish the second. And you look at first part of verse 9, verse 10. It refers to God's will. By which will we've been sanctified by the body of Christ and so forth. And so when he takes away the first will of God so that he can establish the second will of God. That's the first testament, the first covenant, first law, and uh, the second, the new one. Uh, well, there are other passages that we can see that we'll be looking at in a minute. So, let's see where we are. What was the purpose then of the law? It was to keep God's covenant people, the Jewish nation, Hebrews, separate from the Gentiles. He had made a covenant with Abraham. He said, through thy seed, this is Christ, shall all the families and all the earth be blessed. And he needed to keep his seed as pure as he could. Eventually, it was only a remnant through which Christ came into this world. But he had to keep them separate. Many times, you remember, they followed off in the wrong direction. Also, the Old Covenant served as a shadow. Hebrews 10 and 1. Those things were just a shadow of what? Well, you stand out when we have sunshine. You can see your shadow, but you're the substance. Which is the more important? The shadow of the substance. The Old Covenant was just a shadow. The New, co the, uh, the new Covenant is the substance. It is the real thing. And the other was only a shadow leading us. It was a type, or provided types. In the New Testament, we had the antitype. We had an image, but now we have the real person. All right, maybe we better go on. <clears throat> and look at the Christian age. And I'd like to turn to Hebrews 8, where the writer quotes from the Old Testament prophet Jeremiah, verbatim, and then shows that the Prophecy has been fulfilled in the new covenant. We'll start at verse 7 that I quoted earlier. For if the first covenant had been faultless, then would no place have been sought for the second, or a second covenant. For finding fault with them, he saith, that is, with his people. Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that I will make a new covenant. See, here's a promise. Jeremiah lived, round figures, 600 years before he made the new covenant. Before Christ came to the earth. I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to lead them forth out of the land of Egypt. 
for they continued not in my covenant, and I regarded them not, saith the Lord. What covenant did God make with them when he took them by the hand and led them out of Egypt? In the third month, they went to Mount Sinai. Moses was on the mount 40 days twice, and he received a Ten Commandment covenant, the old covenant, the old law. He says, I'm going to replace that with another one. It's not going to be like the first one. Now, he gives us four aspects of the new covenant. Verse 10. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, saith the Lord, I will put my laws into their mind, and on their heart also will I write them. That's the first promise that he makes about the covenant. That covenant or that law is going to be in their mind, on their heart. It's going to be in the inner person. When one becomes a Christian, he knows God's will at least enough to know what he must do to be a Christian, how the Lord wants him to serve. He said, count the call. So there's some information. It's written on his heart that he's going to do God's will. It's kind of like putting in your computer a program, and then you tap whatever, punch whatever keys you want, and, and it, the computer just complies with that program. The Lord has a program, that's the new covenant, that he wants us to follow and to live by. We've been programmed, you might say. It's our decision, though. We surrendered our lives to the Lord. We're committed to his will. And so that's how it's written on our hearts and in our minds. Second, and I will be to them a God and they shall be to me a people. That's covenant language. And you find that many times in both the Old and the New Testaments, Testament books. God is our God, and we are his people because he's entered into a covenant relationship with us. And the new covenant will be the same. Verse 11, And they shall not teach every man his fellow citizen and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for all shall know me, from the least to the greatest of them. Under the old covenant, the male children were circumcised on the eighth day. That was a sign that they were in a covenant relationship with God. Then when they grew up, old enough to understand, then they were taught who God was. He says under this new covenant, it's not going to be like that. Before a person can become a child of God and enter into a covenant relationship with him, he's going to have to know God. He's going to have to know enough of God's will to want to obey it and know what to do in a general way until he learns more and more. And so... We don't uh, baptize babies and then let them grow up and teach them. That was under the old covenant, not the new. Number four, four and verse 12. For I will be merciful to their iniquities and their sins will I remember no more. In other words, he says, I'm going to forgive everybody their sins. The blood of bulls and goats, Hebrews 10 and 4, could not take away our transgressions or our iniquities and our sins. But the blood of Christ will have been shed. It will be available to all people. And it's that promise that the Lord is making here. He will be merciful. He'll forgive us. Under the new covenant, that forgiveness is complete. Well, the Christian age. Uh, the priesthood we mentioned was changed. Hebrews 7 and 12 seeing the priesthood was changed is made of necessity of change also in the law we've talked about that change well, what was the change maybe we were to think now we're under the Christian age we don't have priests that are a special group of men as you find in some denominations today 
pointing back to the old covenant and to Aaron's priesthood. But today, it's been changed. Jesus Christ is the high priest. And he's the only high priest. When the Aaron died, then his oldest son, Eleazar, became the high priest. When Eleazar died, his oldest son, Phinehas, became the high priest. Phinehas died, his oldest son became, and it was handed down like that, generation to generation. But when Jesus died and rose again and sat down at the right hand of God to become our high priest, that's never going to change. He's never going to be succeeded uh, by another high priest. Another part of the change is that every Christian is a priest. 1 Peter 2 and 5. He also as living stones were made a spiritual house or built up a spiritual house to offer up spiritual sacrifices which are acceptable unto God through Christ Jesus. Every Christian is a priest. And we go to God through Jesus Christ, our high priest. We don't have a special priesthood as they did under the old covenant. All right. <clears throat> Two or three short applications. One is, under the new covenant, to come into a covenant relationship with God, we have to obey the gospel. We have to believe, we've already mentioned this before, have to have faith, not to be taught later so we can believe. We have to have such faith we'll repent of our sins, turning from our will to do God's will. We'll confess our faith and we'll be buried with him in baptism for the remission of sins. Baptism then is a part of obeying the gospel. It is a necessity. One cannot be a Christian entering into a covenant relationship with God until he has been immersed in that for the remission of sins. That's a part of the new covenant requirements. Yes, but someone says, what about the thief on the cross? He wasn't baptized, was he? Well, let's look at that and hear the two answers. First question is, he wasn't baptized, was he? Are you sure he wasn't baptized? Can anybody prove that he wasn't baptized? Well, no, you can't. In fact, I think there's more evidence to suggest that he was baptized than that he was not. In Matthew chapter 3 and verses 5 and 6, it speaks about John and his ministry, and let me read about how the people came to him. Then went out unto him Jerusalem, and all Judea, you know, Judea is that whole province around Jerusalem and all the region round about the Jordan and they were baptized of him in the river Jordan confessing their sins. 